Genesis chapter 4. Say, praise the Lord when you're there. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. Say, amen. amen. There we go. Got something. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> All right, let me read the first 16 verses of Genesis 4, and then we will pray again, because it's never a bad thing to pray a lot. All right, Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and born Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, I just ask by um, the power of your Spirit that this text would illuminate our hearts to seeing Christ, to seeing the waywardness of human, humanity, Lord, that it would, it would be a mirror into our own hearts about our own hate towards our brothers and sisters. Lord, we just come before your word asking that you would teach us, shape us, mold us, and encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I went to Jacobson Junior High, uh, where I'm from. We didn't do middle school until, I think, they do middle school now, but for me, it was just 7th and 8th grade. So I went to elementary school at Cummings Valley to 6th grade. I remember one day in 6th grade, we hopped on a bus randomly. Like, we're going on a field trip. And I was like, 
can you just do that? Like, my, our parents don't know. Like, what if my mom comes and checks me out? But, like, they put us on a bus. They take us 15 minutes to the junior high. And we sit in this gym, and the principal tells us what junior high is going to be like. We get a little tour of the campus to kind of orient us towards what life at the junior high will be like. And I remember, specifically, the ASB officer is coming and saying, like, this is what lunch looks like. When you buy lunch, you can buy this, this, and this. And you can also bring your lunch, but it's a little different than elementary school because we actually like bring in little Caesars and there's vending machines and you can buy this and there's actually ice cream that you can buy and this in the cafeteria. And I just tell you, like right off the bat, I was super excited because in my junior high, you could buy Dr. Pepper, pizza, ice cream, Pop-Tarts, Rice Krispie treats. I was like, junior high is the best. Like elementary cafeteria food is garbage. When they say pizza, they mean like rubber old stuff. Like what is this even? So like everyone just brought their lunch, but, but it was cool to buy junior high. And sure enough, the first three weeks of school, like just having all these options, it was, it was amazing. I remember like working as much as I could to take the little bit of cash that I had to go to the school next day and to get two slices of pizza, a Pepsi, and an ice cream cone for four bucks. Come on now. That's a deal. I thought I really wanted. All right. Can't get that kind of deal anymore. But about three weeks into school, the state of California passed some legislation cracking down on the amount of sugar that schools sold. And so they got rid of soda. They got rid of ice cream. They got rid of most of the snacks. So the Doritos then became like the baked Doritos, the garbage kind of stuff, whatever. And and uh, you can only have a certain amount of pizza. I think all these rules, right? And, and of course, like my seventh grade class has always been like this. Man, we are always at that echelon of the good old days, right? Everyone's like, oh, man, the good old days when we used to have all this. Like we got a small little taste before the government cracked down, right? And I remember there literally being like a riot in my junior high. Like people like just demanding that they bring back the ice cream, demanding that we still get, you know, normal Doritos, not the big Doritos. And so we had an assembly to talk about this. Because literally kids would like, to the, to the, the lunch ladies who are selling this food, like just chew them out. They're just so angry, so much animosity about no more soda in school, right? Um, by the way, my generation, like I was told nothing about nutrition. Like a healthy day was like eating... Pop-Tarts, because at least I had breakfast, right? Um, soda and pizza for lunch, and then, you know, binge uh, macaroni and cheese like a whole box, and that was my nutrition in junior high, right? Like, uh, there was not Food, Inc., the documentary when I was around. Like, so <clears throat> we had this assembly, and I remember specifically the, the principal just kind of, after questions and answers, said, guys, listen, this is the new normal. Get used to it. The new normal. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before, but I, I know that when I hear that expression, that to me tells me that things used to be good, but now they're not. This is the new normal. Now, in, in a sense, like when I got married and I no longer sleep alone with my Sasha, the pillow, right? We went over this because apparently I'm super weird, but um, I don't sleep alone anymore. I sleep with um, a woman in the bed, and that's a new normal. It's different, right? That's a good new normal. Let me just say that, okay? Right? The, the, having kids, right? Toys and, and, and baby food and, and high chairs and, and car seats, right? It's a new normal. That's a good new normal. 
don't, don't, don't misunderstand my words here. But the times where maybe your parents cracked down on some rules in your house, they started adding some boundaries. This is the new normal. Get used to it. When something is taken away, a, a, a right, a liberty, a freedom, and you hear the words, this is the new normal. The passage that we just read is the new normal for all of humanity. Man lived in the garden in, in perfect bliss and goodness and in God's providential care for them. But when they took of the fruit, sin entered. The ground was cursed. Relationships were distanced between man and woman. All the Work became hard. And more than that, we see the first murder in this story. This is the new normal for humanity of what it will look like. As a matter of fact, chapters 4 through 11 of Genesis are all showing how this new normal of sin in the world is this big downward spiral towards chaos and disorder. It's the new normal that we live in. It, it is the world of we've all experienced. That at times there is sadness, there is misery, there is relational animosity. If you have a bad day tomorrow, I don't think you'll be surprised really. Because you have already learned in this life that bad days happen. And it's normal to us. Suffering is normal. But this is the new normal we see. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to show how the this, this story of Cain and Abel and, and both their lines really show us the hope of the one day where God will make a better new normal. And so uh, we're going to spend most of our time um, in the storyline of Cain and Abel. And we'll spend a little time looking at the rest of chapter 4. Um, but if you look in your outline, the first thing I want to talk about is what true worship is. <clears throat> what true worship is. Now, um, I don't know how long it was after the fall when Adam and Eve to figure out that one plus one equals two. Um, and verse one, Adam knew his wife, which is the kind of verb for he knew her sexually. And they conceived and bore Cain. Now, just for a second, remember, we talked all last week about this one little verse in Genesis 3.15. Look down really quick. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, again, I talked about how that verse right there creates the whole longing and expectation for the whole Old Testament. And so the second we hear of the seed of the woman, we're kind of being taught to like, hey, maybe this is going to be the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. And so we get this guy named Cain. And right after that, some people think they were twins, but nothing to really support that in the text. Eve has another baby, Abel. And we get this little bio. So Abel was kind of a herdsman. He had sheep and, you know, goats and maybe made cheese and, and had dairy. But Cain worked the, 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 the orchards. He had fruits, maybe an avocado tree, right? I think... Um, ancient Near East, you know, cultures and, and the Middle East, I think of like figs and I think of special dates that, that, that happen. And, and I don't know how they knew to bring an offering to the Lord, but maybe their, their father Adam told them. They both do, right? So look at um, <clears throat> verse four, excuse me, verse three. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. 
Now, first thing is, why exactly was Abel's sacrifice pleasing to the Lord, but Cain's was not? Right? Because to me, as a middle child, this already screams this isn't fair. Right? Like, is it just that God wants some kind of blood sacrifice and, you know, just fruit, it's whatever? I don't think that's the case. Let me tell you. Just because Cain brought fruit and, and apples and, and Abel brought, you know, the firstborn of, of some calf, I do not think that's why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. But let's do a little observation here. Look down again at verse 3. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Okay. Now, I have ESV here, some other translations, and in the Hebrew, it says the word some. He brought some of the fruit of the ground. Now, now highlight this to Abel, verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. So I, I think what, what Moses does here is he shows that, that, that Cain just kind of to his sacrifice, to his worship to God. Hey, God, um, kind of just got some stuff here, brought it for you, here you go. But what did Abel do? The best, the first, the most valuable, the most significant, he gave to the Lord. True worship means that we bring what is most valuable to God. We don't give God the leftovers. And I, I know that sometimes um, money is a, a weird topic to talk about in churches and we don't talk it enough with you guys. But if you have money now or one day when you start making a budget, you start paying your rent and you pay your groceries and you pay your food, you know, and, and gas and, and utilities and all these, and then all these budgets start going down, all these bills going out. And at the very end, maybe you have $200 left. You're like, well, okay, I can have $100 for myself. $50 I'll put in the savings, and I'll give $20 to God. Maybe that characterizes the sacrifice of Cain. He gave some. How about Abel? Maybe he gave the same amount, $20. But the very first thing, you know what he did? First thing, no matter with all my money, $20 goes to the Lord. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews gives us a little insight in Hebrews 12, 11, 4, excuse me. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Here is the difference between their sacrifices. Abel gave out of his faith. But Cain gave out of compulsion. How does this relate to us? What does true worship even look like? True worship is never serving God, singing to him, reading scripture, because we feel a sense of oughtness or because we think God might give us something out of it. True worship is always, first and foremost, done out of a heart of faith, knowing that if I give to God, he'll be faithful to provide the rest. You see, so many times we, as Christians, we week in and week out of churches and youth groups, we, we, we develop this mentality that God spoke a lot to the ancient Israelites of, of more so going through the motions of religion. We offer to God our attendance, i.e., you guys are here right now. We offer to God maybe some heartfelt, inspirational words, 
i.e. worship. We offer to God maybe some sacrifice and some service, and, and we kind of just, in a way, just always do this. In small groups, we repeat the same things over and over again. And it loses its heart of faith. You know, this is why God in the Old Testament said, I don't want your dumb sacrifices. I want a heart that is truly contrite before me, right? Psalm 50, they they just thought the more sacrifices we're giving to God, the better, right? I don't care if your church, if a church, brings in $10 million a year and gives most of it away to the poor. If it is not done in faith, God says, I don't want that. Would it, would it be shocking for me to tell you that God doesn't need your worship? God doesn't need your service? God doesn't need your pity? Like, oh no, like if I don't worship God, no one will. God doesn't need your little mumblings during worship? Because I feel like I should sing, because if people see me not singing, they're going to think that I'm not a good Christian or something. God wants a heart of faith that says, I want to know you, God. God, I want to love you. John Calvin talked about this, right? The theologian, that why do why, why as men do we do good things? Because our first and foremost desire is that we want to glorify God. Can I tell you something? Sometimes our worship is not true. It is just like Cain's. We give some to the Lord. But we do not come to him always with full hearts of zeal. To quote John Calvin, he says this, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sanctified zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. Can I, can I, high schoolers, my heart to yours, youth pastor, your heart. Living a worshipful life unto the Lord will never become a, a, a driving force in your life until you see the indebtedness of your sin to God and how he has provided mercy through Christ. If you are never left with a sense of awe and magnificence of God for what he has done by Christ, by removing your sins, worship will always be a challenge. Worship will always be something that just tends to be a motionless wheel going round and round. What does true worship look like? Out of faith. God, you don't need my words. God doesn't need me to get up here and preach. God doesn't need me to do anything. God doesn't need your money. But when we give out of faith, just like what it says here in the text, that God will have regard for it. I hope that's your desire. That when you sing songs, that when you're at school and you desire to live a worshipful life, that you want God to have regard for it because you do it out of a heart that genuinely wants to please him. I appreciate this passage right here in Genesis 4, right? Most people know about the fruit of the garden in Genesis 3, but no one really knows what happens right after. And we get the first little snippet of what's the new normal? That people are incurably religious. They will do all types of worship stuff, but none of them will actually have hearts of faith. That's why Abel, who gets killed, makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. 
So true worship is worship done by faith. And next, and maybe the, the longer point, is we see <clears throat> a brother's betrayal. So verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, I, I grew up with siblings, and I, I remember the feelings at times where um, one brother would get praise over you. And, and at times it was right. At times, like, I was a loser and didn't do my chores, and I was lazy. And my other brother, um, out of a heart that wants to please the parents, would do it. But I still remember feeling the sense of um, kind of a neglect or denial that, oh, well, they're just this because they, they really are insecure and they want mom and dad's approval. And I'm not really like that. I don't need that from mom and dad. But I, I always felt this, this I guess, um, this unsearchable envy of when my brother would get the special approval of mom and dad when I didn't. And apparently, I mean, even so, think about the Lord coming down and say it's me and Sammy right here, and, and the Lord says, Aaron, good job. Keep it going. Come on in. And Sammy, why'd you even do this if you're not going to do it with your whole heart? Imagine the Lord saying that, right? And I, I, I walk away like, hey, slam dunk, three-pointer, right? And Sammy's like, what the heck? Right, like, I, I just, like, imagine the, the Lord being the one kind of saying the approval and the not approval. And it says that, that Cain's face fell. Now, here's what's interesting, is the Lord actually warns Cain. He says, if you do well, if you do well, Cain, why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And, and see, the English, I don't think, is super clear here, but in Hebrew, kind of what the Lord is saying, like, you also, Cain, can have an offering and a sacrifice that is poison to the Lord if you would just do well by living in faith. Don't just bring some. So God kind of warns him, like, hey, this could be your lot too. I'm not just playing favorites here. This is the Lord kind of intervening, saying, like, hey, man, I see the progression here. I see the jealousy. I see the envy it could be yours too. And what's really interesting is we have this little phrase that, that, that God says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is desire, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And now the imagery here is like a, 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 a lion ready to pounce on you. That is the warning that God gives with sin. Sin is never some theoretical, distant thing that we kind of just wander our way into. Sin is ready at the door. Let me tell you something. I think we'd do well to remember this passage anytime we're annoyed with someone, anytime we're insecure by their accomplishments, anytime there's relational strife, anytime there's anything in a relationship that, that seems to be on uneven ground, we would do well to remember this. That when someone annoys me or when someone insults me or when someone attacks me or angers me or does whatever to throw me off, I need to know that sin is right there ready to gobble me up, to take me, 
Because what? Innocence happens. Verse 8, I'm assuming Cain kind of lured his brother out to the field. And when they're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. The first murder. John Owen has this quote, and it's on my board in my office. If you want to go in there, you can see I've had it for a long time. But he says this. It's really shocking. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You see, here's the thing. Cain gave in to his envy. Cain gave in to his feelings. Cain let sin pounce on him. And so what did he do? He killed. Now, here's what's most shocking about this. You ready for this? He killed his brother. Right? Like, like we all understand at times, like, murdering, you know, some coworker drives you crazy. Or we, we all understand maybe a little bit of murdering the bully. We all get sometimes of... Of, of murdering someone who, who belittles us or disrespects us, but to, but to murder your brother. This is barbaric. This is the new normal. Right? This is, this is so sad. And, and, and here is the challenge with this point of brother's betrayal. And every single one of us says, well, I haven't killed anyone yet, nor have I killed my brother, so I guess I'm Okay. But let's let the catechism teach us here. Heidelberg Catechism here. Question 105 says this. What is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? Does anyone know what the Sixth Commandment is in the Ten Commandments? Thou shall not... Say it out loud. Murder. Thou shall not murder. What is God's will for us in the Sixth Commandment, okay? So, because everyone here, just so you know, we, we all tend to think like, well, I haven't murdered anyone recently or ever. So the Sixth Commandment doesn't really apply to me. Um, just get ready, okay? This one kind of stings. Um, what's God's will for you in that commandment, that shall not murder? That you are not to belittle, insult, hate, or kill your neighbor. Not by your thoughts, your words, your look, or your gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And you are not to be party to this and others. Rather, you are to put away all desire for revenge. You are not to harm or recklessly endanger yourself either. You see, God is not just, again, about the actions. He is about the heart. The new normal of East of Eden, outside of God's presence, is that man is forever bent on himself. That although none of us have actually raised the sword and struck down an enemy or a brother or a mother or a father, who here stands guiltless of being someone who has never belittled someone or insulted someone or hated someone? I'm sure there's people right now in your life who you would actually use the words, I hate that person. Goes on. It's not done, don't worry. Does this commandment refer only to killing? Answer. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy. Anger. Vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are murder. Let that, let that sting a little bit for a second. 
Thou shalt not murder. Yeah, I haven't killed anyone. Well, how, about, how about when Jesus says, if you actually insult your brother, you are liable for the judgment of hell. Uh, according to here, according to God, the, 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 the heart root of murder being envy, anger, vindictiveness. How many of us just really struggle with being vindictive? Maybe we don't necessarily act on it, but in our hearts, we hold grudges. We're angry at people. One more. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such a way? No, it's not enough. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us rather we should love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, to be peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and here's the kicker, and to even do good to our enemies. The sin of man is always this. If we can't kill God, let us kill the ones made in his image. Do you notice that God's questions to Cain echo the questions that he asked Adam in the garden when they sinned? Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to him, where is, your, where is Abel your brother? Remember that question that God said? Where are you, Adam? His answer. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the verse 10, the question of all questions. What have you done? Isn't that what God asked Adam and Eve? What have you done? Because Cain's sin, there's now a double curse on the land. It's even harder to live east of Eden out of the presence of God. Crops will be harder. But what's interesting is that, that Cain is actually allowed to live. Even though he does this horrible thing that he gives into his envy, that the Lord kind of says, hey, it's going to be hard for you to be a fugitive and wander on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And so he kind of complains to the Lord, like, why even keep me alive? This is impossible. And so the Lord put a, a mark on Cain. And, and I don't know what that means, what that looks like. A lot of people have conjecture. Maybe God gave him a dog named Mark to follow him around or something um, to protect him. But, but here's me say something. Um, the line of Cain actually brought some good things. Let's, let's read on a little bit, okay? So after we get this, um, this judgment and Cain will live, verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuel, and Mahuel fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
See, although God allowed Cain to live, we, we see what's really interesting. So one, cities begin to form. Music, culture, art, forgery of metals, right? And, and so we, we see the generations of Cain begin to bless us with good things. And this is what culture is. Culture is a, 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 a beautiful picture of the diversity of, of a people, right? And, and so we see this, but, but, but deep down, if you look, we see something really vicious inside this new culture, right? We see Lamech, the seventh generation from Cain, we see him breaking the pattern that God gave for marriage, and he has taken two wives. So we see the introduction of polygamy, and I just want you to know, side thought, that, that the polygamy is a sub-theme to the book of Genesis, and it always shows the dysfunction of a family when we go outside of God's design for marriage between one man and one woman. Lamech takes two wives, and he says a really horrible thing. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, and a young man for striking me. Now, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, a young man means like a lad, a little boy. And for striking me really is, is the idea that he scratched me. And so what we have is seven generations after the fall, the new normal is that such wickedness is that women are being forced into marriage, that murder is common, and we have men bragging about killing little boys for simply scratching them. This generation of Cain, all of the generations that follow, would be so evil that we'll see next week that God would actually have to send a flood to destroy the whole line of Cain because of the evilness of their ways. A brother's betrayal. Last thing I want to say. The only thing I think people know about Genesis chapter 4 is that expression that Cain uses, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? You guys, listen, every single one of us, we need to be aware that envy is not a thing to take lightly. It blows up to catastrophic results, right? A little bit of envy can lead to horrible results, right? Anger is not just anger. It is actually murder in our hearts. And see, Cain here says, am I my brother's keeper? And here's the question, here's the answer. Yes, you absolutely are. God has created you in the context of relationships. That true culture, unlike what we see here in Genesis 4, is to do good for the common well-being of my neighbor, of, of man and woman, that I would create things, I would start a business, that I would write songs that would not primarily be about me, but it would be about the well-being of others. You see, as Christians, we firmly believe that God has covenanted with us and therefore, if he has covenanted with you, that we have a covenant together. And as a church, when we come to this youth group, we are literally saying, that, yes, I will be your keeper. Yes, I, I, I will take notice of you. That I, I will, as what does the catechism say? Be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to protect as much as we can. That is what it means to be a brother's keeper, that, that I would tell you about your sin, that I would actually take the time to know your name, that if you aren't here, 
I would go out of my way to bring you in. Right? Some of us here, we, we, we walk in our lives only focused about ourselves. Only focused about who's wronging us. Who's nice to us? How can my life be better? And all of those are echoes of Cain and his descendants, of living for self, of no concern desire for others, envy, anger, vindictive. But as Christians, may we be different. May I care about you. May, 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 may my well-being be lowered when I'm thinking about you. A brother's betrayal. This is the new normal that we will fight our entire life to make it about us. Pretty bleak so far, the new normal. It isn't really good. Worship is hard. Culture is difficult. The whole world we live in is it's about self. But we have a new birth at the very end of chapter 4. Look down at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So here, here's what's really interesting about the whole storyline of the Bible. That it is God who is always faithfully providing for himself a people who will love him and obey him. You see, we get this imagery, right? A descendant from the woman will, will crush the head of the serpent, right? But what happens? We get two seeds, Right? One is off the trails crazy, and two, the other one dies. And we're left here thinking, man, is this what's going to happen? Like the descendant who's going to take care of, of the serpent, who's going to crush sin, who's going to push back the forces of darkness, what's going to happen? God is the one who has to faithfully provide a faithful line. And it would be through the line of Seth that would one day lead to the seed of Mary that would culminate in Jesus Christ. You see, but, but, but here's, here's the New Testament illusion here, that God has to create new birth. Do you, do you notice there's this theme in, in the Bible where God always takes the younger brother and not the oldest? Right? Jacob gets the inheritance, not Esau. Joseph, a younger brother, gets elevated. Israel gets taken out of the most powerful nation of the world, Egypt. David, the Hakaton, the, the least of the sons. Jesus, a man who was despised and rejected by many. God takes what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God takes what is weak. God takes the lower one. God makes for himself a new birth. And so it is with us, guys. Jesus would have a conversation. Jesus would come to earth and he'd be walking around at night and he'd walk up to a Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus and he would say, you must be born again. You guys, listen. There is no hope for you ever 
to have a heart of true worship. There is no hope for you ever to learn to actually be your brother's keeper if you do not get a new heart, if you, if you are not born again, if you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Everything you do will just be a religious circle in which you will live a life just like Cain, vindictive, full of revenge, full of anger towards those around you. You see, here's the hard teaching. I can't do this for you. You can't do this for you. Your parents can't do this for you. But God, but God can. What is impossible for man is possible with God. What's the point of this sermon? What's the point of, of, of Genesis chapter four? Here it is. That God is always faithful to make for himself a people who will worship and obey him. Listen, my, my, my challenge to you is this. Sometimes we assume far too many of you are actually walking with the Lord and have new life and new birth in Christ. And, and, and here, I just want to lay out the gospel as clear as I can. Because you are a sinner, because you have inherited the line of Cain, this, this, this sinful nature from our, our first father, Adam, Everything you do in life will be tainted by sin. Your thoughts, your actions, your deeds, your words, your attitudes, everything is tainted by sin. We can not do anything to draw close to God. It is God who calls. It is God who initiates. And so therefore, God sees the problem of our sin. And in the fullness of time, God would enter into humanity. He would be of a new line. He would be of the seed that would stomp the head of the serpent. He would go to the cross. He would take the sin of those who call upon him in faith. He would give us his righteousness so that we may be forgiven, that we may have new life, that we may, as we sang the song, be free now, Colossians 5.1, to actually love our brothers. That we are free now, not to the tyranny of sin. We are free to obey the law, to be patient and kind and merciful and to have fruit of the spirits. This is what it means to be a Christian, that we no longer depend on ourselves, but we depend or we have faith in Christ. And this can only happen if, by the Spirit, you are born again. And don't, don't be left wondering, am I born again or not? If you aren't sure, Pray. Or the Lord, ask him, make, give me this new heart that I may love my brother, that I may be someone who comes to you every day with a heart of true worship, that I may live a life where I want to die to your glory and live for you. See, Genesis 4 is a sneaky little passage, but really what it shows us is a huge mirror into our own hearts and our need for new birth, which can only come in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would have hearts of faith, that we would see Christ for who he is, that we would see him as the true and better Adam, that in Christ we know that our sins are forgiven, that in Christ we are clothed with his righteousness, that in Christ we are promised an inheritance that is being kept for us. Lord, so many times, Father, even though that we are in Christ, we still treat our brother like Cain treated Abel. 
We murder each other in our hearts all the time. And Lord, it is only by your spirit that we can learn to be sanctified, to be like Jesus who never once murdered anyone by deed or in his heart. So Father, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to be caused to be born again, that we may live a life of of how we were designed to, of loving you and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, this is our cry. This is our challenge. May, Lord, the gospel encourage us every day to be people who, in fact, are our brother's keepers. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.